Welcome back, everyone. This is the I'm in Love With That Song podcast here on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brad Page, and on this episode, I'm joined by a special guest for another edition of The Albums That Made Us. Now, you know, I love to dig into the nitty gritty on how a song was written, performed and recorded. But more than anything, I'm most interested in the way that music affects our lives in deep and long lasting ways. John Lamoureux is the host of The Hustle Podcast, one of the best podcasts out there about the artists and producers behind all the great music. And he's also someone I consider a real friend. John is another one who spent a lot of time thinking about the role that music plays in our lives. So I've asked John to join me for this episode to talk about an album that means a lot to him personally. Well, John Lamoureux, thank you for joining me for this, uh, for this episode. It's a pleasure to Good have time. you. So I, as you know, I've always been fascinated with the power of music, the way it can shape us socially and politically and the places that it can lead us. So I wanted you to come on and tell me about an album that has had that kind of impact on your life. It's funny you use the word places because that is the, um, that is the impetus for why I'm picking the album that I'm picking. People who know me, and I don't, I, I don't know how much of a crossover our listenership is, but people who know me I think would be surprised to find out that probably the most impactful album of my entire life is Jethro Tull's songs from the wood which i think came out in 1978 and um the reason for that is that and this is not going to make sense so let me follow my logic here Mm -hmm. the sweet spot of all sweet spots for me is alternative british music from the 80s so bands like new order depeche mode echo and the Bunnymen, the smiths those kinds of things that's my favorite stuff in, in my own way, Jethro Tull's Songs from the Wood album opened my mind to a sound that was so specifically and uniquely British that I realized I loved that sound. So it shouldn't be that you listen to Jethro Tull and that's what leads you to New Order, but that's exactly what happened to me. It's really fascinating. I, well... It, In my mind, and maybe you can relate to this, in my mind, I'm thinking there are only a handful of bands that are so specifically British that they could never have come from anywhere else, Mm -hmm. no other country. And to me, those bands are Jethro Tull, The Kinks, T-Rex, The Smiths, and maybe Blur. Everybody else, um, and I'm sure I'm missing some, but of the big heavy hitters, those are the ones, because they are so steeped in Britishness um, British thinking, British sounds. In Jethro Tull's case, it's all the the folk and the uh, Elizabethan side and uh, Shakespearean, whatever it might be. Those artists could not have lived or been created anywhere else. And so I just found that I really love that sound. Anything coming from that source hit, hit me hard. I love it. And what was it about the British thing that inspired you or or attracted you maybe that's a better way to put it that that the american music didn't have can you put your finger on what it was just that it sounded so different than the american music that was around you that it was new and fresh or or what was it 
I think that might be it. Number one, I don't really care, and you know this, too deeply about blues-based rock, mm -hmm. blues-based music. If it's too heavily blues-based, which Jethro's first few albums were, that really doesn't do anything for me. So this album in particular, I remember it so well. My older cousin, Rick, everybody has those older siblings that turn them on to music. For yep. me, it was my older cousin, Rick. He was two years older than me. And I remember walking into his bedroom, it was down in the basement, and as soon as I opened the door, Songs from the Wood, that acapella introduction to Songs from the Wood, bursts out at me, and I've never heard anything like it. Let me bring you songs from the wood To make you feel much better than you could know Better than you could Dust know Dust you down from tip to toe Dust you down from tip to toe Show you how the garden grows Show you how the garden grows Hold you steady as you go Hold steady as you Join go. the chorus if you can It'll make of you an honest man Let me bring you love from the fields Poppies, red and roses filled with summer rain To heal the wound and still the pain And so it immediately is unique and different, but then it goes into some fairly rocking, catchy rock music. And I'd never thought of anyone ever merging the two together before. I know Ian Anderson takes a lot of heat, like playing the flute in a rock band is something only wimps would do. But it's a... It's a really fascinating, unique accent or flavor that is gestating or working within this rock music. And I love that. And so it reminds me of Elizabethan poetry and Robin Hood and King Henry and fox hunting and whatever else, whatever those typical things you think of when you think of Britishness. That's what I think of. Beef eaters, those kinds of things. Right. That's what the music of Jethro Tull really... Uh, brings to mind. And this album in particular was the first one that did it to me. Besides the title cutter, there are there songs that really stuck with you on this record that mean something to you? Yeah, there are a couple of them. I think my favorite song on the album is called The Whistler. I think that was the single. I think you're right. I think there's a video out there, which I found later in life, which is fun. I love that probably because I love the introduction. I love those kind of darker chords that are being played, boom, 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 boom. You know, it's so ominous, but it, it soars into brightness from there. The other one that I really loved was Velvet Green mm -hmm. because it kicks off with this harpsichord and you don't hear 
bright, beautiful harpsichord and rock music very often, you know? So the, again, this is just rock you're imagining being performed in a cathedral or in a Westminster Abbey or something like that. For me personally, and maybe another reason why it resonates, my dad, uh, who passed away recently, my dad was a con uh, symphony conductor. He would conduct orchestras and, and choirs. And so I grew up going to his, all of his performances and stuff like that all the time. Now, I rebelled as a kid against classical music and anything relating to classical music. It was not my jam. But in a way, maybe because maybe one of the reasons this hit me so hard as like an 11 or 12 year old is because it was merging the things I actually did like about classical music and didn't want to admit with the rock music that I already could get down with. And so it's merging these two worlds. And Jethro Tull became a band that me and my dad and my parents could all enjoy because it touched on these things that we liked separately, but brought us together. That's really interesting. I don't, I don't know that there's many people that, that would say Tull was the band that, that sort of musically bonded them with their parents, but um, I, but it makes perfect sense in that yeah. in that kind of scenario. strong record though if if this is your bag and i know a lot of people don't <laughs> dig it for all kinds sometimes it's the flute sometimes mm -hmm. you know ian's voice can be an acquired taste i guess it's mm. it's a very distinctive style that he sings mm -hmm. uh the songs don't tend to have quote-unquote hooks in a pop sense mm -hmm. a lot mm -hmm. but it's a pretty strong record i had forgotten that um Solstice Bells was on this record. I, one of my mm. favorite Christmas records is the Jethro Tull Christmas album that came yeah. out, I don't know, probably 20 years after this album came out, and they did a, a new version of on there, on there but I, 
I forgot that song actually came from this record, but that's just mm-hmm. a great Christmas song that never, you know, it's not overplayed. Maybe that's why I love it, yeah. but probably. Now it's a song to something in. So this was obviously my introduction to Jethro Tull, and I'm not—I love Jethro Tull, but I'm—I'm I'm picky. I, I'm not the world's biggest prog fan, and so there are—I don't just love every little thing that these guys do. But there were always on albums like Aqualung or Minstrel, there would be a you know like half rock songs and then half these very pretty folky songs. Mm-hmm. And I—if I was honest about it, I was always kind of leaning toward the folky ones. I don't want to ever hear Aqualung or Locomotive Breath again. So this album being primarily that sound is probably what helps it get raised in my heart and mind so much. For instance, the one song on this album I cannot stand is that P-Broke or Pie-Broke or whatever you say it, mm-hmm. Cap in Hand. When I had uh, Ian on my podcast a while back, I even asked him what that meant. I don't remember what the answer was. <laughs> but there... The opening guitar riff of that song, and the song goes on for almost nine minutes, is really off-putting to me. So I don't get into that song at all. In fact, I feel bad because growing up, I had the cassette and I would never listen to Fire at Midnight, which is a really lovely little song. That's on the Christmas album, the too. Yeah. They re- so. Yeah. That, it is, that's a great song. Yeah. Yes. But I would miss it because on the cassette, I didn't want to hear Pie Broke. So I would just fast forward through the whole thing and, you know, I'm not going to work that hard to find fire at midnight tucked away at the end of this cassette. So mm-hmm. anyway, I finally later on in life with the CD and everything, you can uh, discover how beautiful it is for yourself. I believe in fires at midnight when the dogs have all been fed. A golden tongue on the mantle, a broken gun beneath the bed. Silken mist outside the window, frogs and newts slip in the Yeah, I just, I, I don't love everything, but there's a lane that Jethro can get in that I love a lot. And, th- and I do love some of their Rocky stuff too. 
but um, some of it's not my not my jam. Mm-hmm. But this record was able to to take you places, both kind of mentally and almost literally, in the sense of taking you to a whole nother country and this the kind of the absolutely native sounds of of that place that's it yeah and, and so opened a door you. for you in a big way yes and so it plops you in the middle of the wilderness or the wilds the forests of of nottingham or whatever in england and you feel you can almost smell it you know you know you're in a totally different location than salt lake city utah where i grow up mm-hmm but then jump ahead a little bit and you hear bands like the Smiths or you hear bands like psychedelic furs and the sound. Now it's not a Jethro Tull sound, but whatever they're doing, that's not happening in America either. You know, those, that combination of kind of jangly rock guitars, but also a really pop hooks and some brightness. And people don't always think of like echo and the bunny men as being bright, but to me it is because there's the hooks are so powerful. And so to me, it's not that far off songs from the wood to the killing moon. There's a direct line there, even though most people wouldn't tell you that, you know, they don't see it that way, but to me they do because they put you in a place and that place is a really inviting uh, place for me to be in. Well, I think like you said before too, it's a place that sounds distinctly not American. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Well, that I just think that's really fascinating. A, a record that's kind of like that for me might seem a little bit of a stretch, but is the David Bowie album, David Live, which sometimes referred to as David Live at the Tower of Philadelphia. It was a live record that was recorded on the Diamond Dogs tour. Mm. And this was a record I got early on. You know, I came into music at the height of the live album when the live album was the thing. You know, Kiss Alive, Frampton Comes Alive. Um, mm-hmm. All those, those, everybody had to have a live record at the time. Anyway, I'm a big live album fan. And at mm-hmm. that point, I was, like many people of that era, I was constantly signing up and canceling and signing up and canceling with Columbia Record House and the RCA Record <laughs> Club and getting my, my 12 albums for a dime or whatever it was. Yeah. And then buying the three that I needed to buy and then canceling and then doing it over again. And so I built my library from that, my first uh, record library. And this was one of the first records I got when I was scooping up Mm. live albums like crazy. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I had knew some David Bowie stuff before, but there was a lot in this record that I wasn't super familiar with. But I think what, what got me about this record is, is that this was the record that showed me how songs can evolve and be taken in different places live with a different band and a, in a different approach. This, and none of this, I didn't know any of this at the time, but this was the period where Bowie, he had this huge stage show for diamond dogs and it was, mm-hmm. it was really ahead of its time and some of it barely functioned. Mm-hmm. Um, he used to have a cherry picker that I think half the time would just get stuck out all over the audience and it'd end up sitting out there for like four songs because right. the thing wouldn't pull back. And it was a big production. And about halfway through the tour, he basically scrapped all of that and he started listening to a lot of soul music. And then young Americans followed this 
so this was a period where he was transitioning from the harder rock of the Ziggy period into Diamond Dogs and then into the white soul thing of Young Americans. And this is the record that bridges that. And so the songs that you are familiar with hearing more in kind of the straightforward rock way have this mm-hmm. sort of, he's injecting this soul thing in them. And it's taking the songs to a place that's noticeably different than listening to the studio records in a fascinating way. And then there are other tracks where, where he has almost this sort of Middle Eastern influence in them. Um, the opening to 1984 sounds like you're walking in a bazaar in the Middle East mm-hmm. somewhere and hearing this, this music drifting in. The version of Rebel Rebel have these kind of weird chants that the background vocals are doing that's just kind of come out of nowhere in this song. And then there's just, there's these weird things, like there's just, little doo-wop performance. Slick just tears it up on the guitar through this whole record. He's got some of my favorite guitar tone ever. But then you've got David Sanborn sax, which is a big part of the band. And he was the first sax player that made an impact on me in a way that like I I could pick him out on other records. Yes. I was just going to say that same thing. I'm not very good about doing that. I don't always know who a guitarist is or a drummer or am able to pick that stuff out. But Sanborn, you know, the second you hear a Sanborn skronk on anything. The version of all... Uh, all the young dudes on here is a really soulful version of that mm-hmm. song. Sweet Thing is one of the ones that stands out to me. Yeah, there's um, a great guitar solo in that song, but it's yes. a great version on this record. <laughs>
every song has something interesting about it. And that's really, that's Bowie, right? That's just never satisfied, always moving forward, always mixing things up. Definitely. Talking about a, how a record can sort of take you a place. This didn't take me to a physical place, yeah. but it showed me how music can be a constantly evolving and changing thing. And that the way you did it on the studio album isn't necessarily that's it, that's done, that's how it's mm -hmm. always, it's, it's in amber. The songs can evolve and change with you and still be the same songs, but just have elements injected in them that are fresh and new and take the song someplace that it, it hadn't been before. Well, good one. I love Bowie. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this with me, John. It's always a pleasure to, to talk to you and, and to share our musical experiences. Anytime, brother. I love it. I love talking with you. Same here. Let me bring you all things refined. Galleons, lit song, served in chilling ale. Greetings, well met, fellow. Thanks to John Lamoureux for joining me today. If you've never listened to his podcast, it's called The Hustle. Go check it out right now. It's great. And thanks to you for joining us for this conversation. If you have an album that's meant the world to you, let us know. Post it on our website, lovethatsongpodcast.com, or on our Facebook page. You'll find us there by searching for the I'm in Love With That Song podcast. We'll return in two weeks with our regular podcast. On behalf of John, myself, and everyone on the Pantheon podcast team, we thank you for listening to and supporting our shows. See you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.